0: But first I'll tell you guys a little bit about my story, which some of you know since I grew up here, but um, I was born up here and started skiing when I was a really little guy, and some of you know my dad, that's his fault, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, yeah, somehow skiing became a passion, go figure, and uh, I started competing, and it was really fun, and then It progressed and skiing became my life and I was I based everything off of how good I was what tricks I could do or you know whatever I was focused on being the best and I never became the best go figure and uh it's a really dark place when you want to be the best and you can't be the best and especially when your self-worth is tied up in it so I quit skiing and I went to Kansas and um It was a really confusing time in my life. I didn't know why God would have me ski and grow up skiing and then not have that work out. So I was confused working that out. And then this chance came up to go to India and teach skiing with SFC, Snowboarders and Skiers for Christ. And skiing became selfless instead of selfish. And now I still am working with SFC and I coach at Woodward. um, Still trying to spread the shred. That's what I call it. (laughs) So it went from self-aggrandizement to selflessness. God had to kill my passion, he had to kill my dream in order to redeem it and make it fully his. Uh, Now my renewed dream accomplishes his mission and his purpose. Not my own selfish agenda, hopefully. (laughs) And uh, so that particular, very particular background... Advantages and upbringing um, was part of my beginning. And I used to weep over the death of my dream. I used to laugh about the idea of affecting change with skiing. Uh, I used to just wait and think, oh, too much time has passed to be effective. And uh, so we'll see. We'll track those themes. So sometimes we might laugh at god or we might just be waiting for god and think too much time has passed we might weep over the death of our dreams and we might like me i acted in disobedience and unfaithfulness that i couldn't accomplish something for god Um, we can fall into the trap of thinking change is impossible because of time or shortage of resources or we see our lives in the state of the world and we laugh at god like yeah, right, God, you can end slavery, give me a break, or you can cure cancer, whatever. Or we see the lives and the state of the world and we weep, like we might weep about the refugee situation in the Middle East and Europe or about the uh, tragedy in Nepal. The list goes on. But all these things, weeping, laughing, waiting, they only become disobedience when we throw our hands up and say, I'm just going to do it my way, God. Forget your way. So, we can use our gifts, the power of difference. We're different as a people than any other people, we're super affluent. We can use this difference to bless others and further good, not exploit or oppress. So, let's move into the story in Scripture in Genesis we'll start out the idea starts in Genesis 3 people are in this downward spiral starting in Genesis 3 they're just humanity is on a crash course but God's grace keeps it from actually just shattering on the rocks um humans are in self-destruct mode basically that's the theme of sin through the Bible is self-destruction um But grace, or God's saving action, keeps making space for redemption. God's action is giving the freedom to become fully human again throughout this narrative. So, Abraham Abraham and Sarah, this story starts in Genesis 12 after this downward spiral. And this is the key point where God is intervening. And God intervenes with a promise. God's promise is his response to people's choices and the state of the world. So this is a story about God doing something to make the world better. And every miraculous beginning is this. This is the theme of miraculous beginnings. It's God's doing something to make the world better. It's his response. Um, And the ultimate beginning... The ultimate miraculous beginning is the birth of Jesus, right? So these all lead up to that. So Genesis 12, 1 through 4 is the start of the promise. And God gives Abram a command. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And he gives a promise. And Abraham's exclusiveness is has a purpose to bless the whole world. And so what is Abraham doing? He He's told to leave his father's house. And this means that he legally in those times, he has nothing. He's leaving everything. He's probably going to die because he can't even take, you know, food and stuff because his father has rights to all that. And they're all living together. But he takes Lot. Why does he take Lot? Lot's is part of his father's house. This is an act of maybe unfaithfulness, I don't know. I mean if if Lot was like if he was a nephew like I was a nephew, he would be the reason I was leaving my father's house. <laughs> but he takes him anyways. I don't know why. So then in 1213 let's see Abraham Abram at this point they're journeying They get nervous, they're afraid that God won't fulfil his promise. And Abram says to Sarah, Sarai, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with you, that it may go well with me because of you. So they're going through, he gives his wife to Pharaoh, right, to the king of Egypt, because he's afraid for his life. But how is this promise going to be fulfilled if they're if they're dead? This, this is another act of unfaithfulness. They're doubting. Okay, now 15.6. Go through, keep going through the narrative of Abraham and Sarah. 15.6 says... And you probably all have heard this verse before. If you haven't, it's pretty famous. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So this belief... This is a shining moment in Abraham's life. Right? He's having these ups and downs of faith, and this belief that he has is equated with what God has intended. And what God intends is the promise of a son to Abraham. Then we go through and this this is the chapter where Abraham is promised a son. He knows he's going to have descendants as as multitudinous as the stars but this is where it specifically says he'll have a son and then 16 so he knows this he's gonna have a son but he's getting old he's getting nervous again so and Sarah is the same she knows the promise and she is getting nervous too and the story of Hagar and Ishmael comes up in Genesis 16 if you don't know that story uh Basically, Sarah and Abram try to make God's promise work out their own way. And this ends in conflict, which makes sense if you have your handmaiden sleep with your husband to have a son. It doesn't sound like a happy home. (laughs) But God blesses both Hagar and Ishmael anyways. So you can see this exclusiveness, this choosing and this promise is super particular, but it makes way for inclusiveness. Because Hagar and Ishmael are not of this line of, uh, they're probably, Hagar's probably from Egypt. Anyways, Genesis seventeen seventeen, we go through. And God promises a son again. So he's like, okay, you're going to get it soon. Keep repeating it. And he goes, you're going to have a son. And Abraham falls on his face and laughs. And he says to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? He's like, how is this going to happen? He's like, I'm not going to have a kid. I get up three times every night to pee. So Abraham laughs at God. And then eight, chapter 18, 9 through 15 is a story of the Lord coming. You might know the story. The Lord comes, and they're trying to prepare a meal for him because he's going to, the Lord is going to deliver this message again, this promise. He's trying to drill it into him because he knows they're not getting it. And he gives them this promise. He gives the promise to Abraham. And Sarah's like behind the tent flap. She's like peeking out, you know. And he goes, you're going to have a son. And then Sarah, she's like, yeah, right. And then God's like, hey, who's laughing back there? She's like, it wasn't me. I don't know who it was. But you see this, all this laughing that's going on, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. But we'll get into that. This promise is made, and um, Sarah is closely tied to Mary because all of these births are images of people who bear God to the world. And Mary is, she bears Christ to the world. But Mary, when the promise is given, she doesn't laugh. So then Genesis 20 finally rolls around to the great relief of Abraham and Sarah. <laughs> and uh, But before the promise is fulfilled, Abraham messes up again. He does the same thing he did at Egypt. He gives his wife to Abimelech. He's still scared. He's still not getting it. But it's interesting too in Genesis 20 God on behalf of Abraham and Sarah opens the wombs of women under Abimelech before Sarah they have they can have children before Sarah can have children so this also foreshadows the inclusiveness the way that God's people can bless the world now with all these stories of, in mind with I mean you can't escape that these These characters are human. They're making mistakes. They're having ups and downs. So we can't read this story moralistically. They're not the epitome of a moral life, obviously. So we can't concentrate on their actions when we're reading this story. We have to concentrate on God's actions. We have to read it theologically, not moralistically. I mean, you can tell by their lack of merit. So, it depends on grace, God's action, not on works, which you can see in Genesis 21-2. When the time is fulfilled, at the time which God promises, he will act, which is grace. And this is the exact same language that's used at the birth of Jesus. When the time is fulfilled, God will act. And God acts despite the ups and downs of Abraham and Sarah's faith and despite the ups and downs of Israel's faith, right? So let's look at this idea of chosen, this exclusiveness or particularness. Isaac is the only child of promise, just as Abraham and Sarah are the only ones chosen to begin this story of redemption. It doesn't get more exclusive than just one person. And more is said about Isaac's birth than any other birth in the Bible except for Jesus Christ. And Sarah is even more important than Abraham. Abraham has other sons by other women, but Sarah's son is the only child of promise. And in the ancient Near East, which is the time when they lived, um, the only reason that they could come up with for a woman not being able to have children was a curse because it was so important for survival and for legal actions and all that to have children the only reason they could come up with was a curse but we see again and again that God uses people who are viewed as cursed to bring about redemption and God acts when the time has fully come now, with the birth of Isaac and the birth of Christ, the time between the promise and the fulfillment is almost unbearable, right? In fact, for those living in between the time of the promise and the fulfillment, it is unbearable. They can't, they can't get it straight. They can't get it in their head. And Israel is the same way. But Abraham and Sarah have a kid when they're way too old. So, who cares? Who cares about these two old people having a kid? It's weird. But, what does it matter? God keeps his promise despite all odds. Nothing stops his action. Nothing stops his grace in motion. Not weeping, not laughter, not time, not even disobedience. This is good news. There's also a flip side to this coin. God can't be manipulated. That's also good news. It's funny that when God wants to get something done, when he wants to get grace done in salvation history, it's funny that whenever he wants to do this, someone gets pregnant. Someone gets pregnant when he wants to establish the people of Israel. That's Now, that's Isaac. Someone gets pregnant when he wants to deliver Israel from the Philistines, Samson. Someone gets pregnant when he wants to transition from judges to kings, Samuel, or herald the coming of the Messiah, John the Baptist, or become incarnate. God works works redemption through creation of new life through women, their bodies, agencies, and work. This echoes the cross. These stories proclaim that God gives among the least and marginalized, confounding human wisdom by working redemption through something considered accursed. All of these miraculous births foreshadow the birth of Christ. Maybe we shouldn't think our mistakes or situation make us inadequate when god tells us we will be bearers of the hope of jesus in the form of god's kingdom to the world i fall into this trap all the time where i think that my effectiveness for good is contingent upon my own merit in faithlessness and disobedience i pursue Selfish recognition through skiing. I would weep over the death of my dreams. I would laugh at the idea of effecting change through skiing. I would think too much time has passed to be effective. And this, it's heartbreaking. And Sarah is probably brokenhearted too. She's probably thinking just like I am. God is in the business of killing my dreams. But God still uses Sarah even when she can't have kids anymore. The equivalent in skiing would be like thinking I can change the world with skiing but being so old that I'm on the, on the flatty flats, on the bunny slope, Green Acres or Molly Hogan and still thinking how am I going to change the world if I'm on the bunny slope. But the gifts we have are given to us in order to be used redemptively. That is, if we have power, it is to be used to empower others. If we have privilege, it, be, it should be used to serve others. If we have security, it should be used to bring peace. I wonder what it looks like to increase space where God's will is done. I wonder what it looks like to be points of contact between heaven and earth. That's the image of Jacob's ladder. Jacob is Sarah's grandson. That's the the image of the nation of Israel, points of contact between heaven and earth, and ultimately, Jesus. So this realization for me, that God is going to make space for us to be restored and move toward being more fully human, no matter the circumstances, it gives me a sense of overwhelming freedom. I no longer feel the pressure to worry about someone else's Eternal soul. Worrying about that is not the is not the model. This story tells me that God is redeeming humans, body, mind, and heart. He's redeeming all of creation. This is freeing to me to love others whole being genuinely, to love creation genuinely. Loving the whole person is our privilege and responsibility. I believe, I hope, that God is making the world better using skiing as a tool. He began something unique with my story. He began something unique with your story. Something that makes the world better. Knowing that God will get grace done no matter what. I wonder what it looks like for all of us to be free, to use our beginnings, our passions, to love creation and people in a holistic way. This is exciting. God can use us to change the world, even if we're just on the flatty flats. Yeah, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for working. Thank you for affecting change in us and through us. And help us to bring this hope and embody this hope. Thank you for working throughout this story, throughout scripture and history. And I ask that you would let us see that more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Stefan. That was fun, yeah. fun journey. Uh, let's, you know what? We can give him an, an applause. <laughs> that's, that's that's all right. <laughs> Thanks.